0: well good morning everyone good to have and see all of you here this morning uh kenneth thanks for sharing a little bit about your ministry and if you've got uh, i want to just reiterate if you've got some resources or bikes that you're not using and want to get rid of this is a great opportunity to help uh, one of the people as part of our community to help make a difference in uh, north minneapolis Uh, i also want to mention in addition to the announcements we made Uh, Most of you already know that Dick Benchuf passed away this last week and our service is going to be on Thursday. The viewing is at 12 noon here and then the service will be at 1 o'clock. And so I think some of them are up there. I can't see everybody, but I think Benchufs are up there. So we've been praying for them as they go through this journey. I also know that uh, Rick Stuhlberg uh, lost his mother this week as well, so we just... I hope you'll be praying for them as they go through that loss and make transitions. And so those things are never easy. We know that lots of you are going through life things. Uh, We often can't uh, be praying for things that we don't know about, so I want to continue to reiterate that if you have things in your life that you want us as staff or elders or just part of community groups to be praying for you, uh, please let us know. We'd be more than honored to be praying for you as you go through those. I don't see prayer as a just a religious exercise, but allowing God to touch us in ways that uh, we often can't imagine. So before we step into the text, I'm gonna invite you to bow with me and let's uh, present ourselves before his presence. Father, we um, have this gift of life, and sometimes it gets shaken by the things that are going on around us, and we would ask that we would continue to allow those circumstances to drive us closer to you rather than further away we know that we can sometimes look up and find ourselves a long way from the shore and feels like a long way from your presence. And so we ask that as we know that your spirit is with us and dwells our hearts and minds, that we would be willing and courageous enough to listen to his voice as he would direct us to uh, your truth and your word and the presence of Jesus in us. Uh, Father, we know that um, regardless of outward appearance, we all have our stuff. And some of it is we've learned to allow you to bring healing into our life. Other parts of it we've tried to ignore uh, just because it's at times too painful to deal with and a lot of it's unresolved. And Father, as we step into Mark this morning that you will continue to give us the courage to trust what Jesus can do in our lives that we cannot do for ourselves. And so we continue to count it a tremendous privilege to enter your throne room to be by, uh, in your presence and to allow your grace to respond to the deepest needs we have as human beings and as your children. And for all of this we pray and give you thanks in Christ's name, amen. I know I've told the story a couple of times but there's enough new people here that maybe some of you will find this interesting. Uh, when I started my first pastorate I was 25 years old. I was in a rural church out in the middle of Alberta which is that country north of here, uh, one of the provinces, but we don't call them states, we call them provinces, and uh, it had literally had three, it was two and a half streets, a corner store, and a gas station, and that was it. Uh, It was kind of an interesting spot. Obviously, the auditorium was much smaller, and I remember getting interrupted twice in my first year that I was preaching there. The first time that we were sitting there over on the right-hand side, some of the youth would sit over on that side, and i was starting my message and preaching away and all of a sudden i could hear voices over here and i kind of tried to ignore it cuz i don't like stopping what i'm doing but all of a sudden i noticed like half the congregation turned and looked over here and there was two girls sitting over here chatting up a storm right in the middle of the message and i was kind of like you know what do i do with this and it They just kept going, they just wouldn't stop, and you could hear them all over the room. So I finally just stopped and kind of looked at them. And they didn't know I'd stop. They were so engrossed in their conversation, they just kept right on going. And it took about 15 seconds, and all of a sudden, they kind of stopped and looked up, and everybody else was looking at them. And I said, you know, if it's okay with you, I'd like to keep going. Well, they were a little mortified that I'd called them out, but I'm kind of like, well, if what do you want me to do you know I'm not competing with you the other time that was kind of interesting that was an interesting distraction was uh, an evening service in the same place didn't have as many people and I was just we were just kind of getting started and all of a sudden I saw something move out of the corner of my eye and I turned around just in time to see a mouse hit the front of the stage and go scooting across the front of it and I was going to ignore that, except by the time he got over here, he made a left turn and headed for the eight ladies. Like, we're st- and I said, just so you're not startled, there's a mouse headed for you. Well, <laughs> f- for a farming community, I got a much bigger response than I thought I was gonna get. It was—they were up on the pews and like heading for the exits. It was hysterical. I thought. And, and it was kind of one of those interruptions that I kind of afterwards went, I don't know if I handled that correctly or not, but it's things happen in life, and it doesn't matter whether you're preaching, I think all of you know that there's been times in life when you've sort of got your heart focused on something, and then something comes along and completely messes up the journey. It, it's a disruption, it's an interruption that basically derails everything you're trying to do, and you don't know whether you should be mad or just laugh at it. Unfortunately for many of us, we just get ticked because somebody's messing up my schedule and what I want to do, and we think that's disrespectful, and so we often take it out on them. We do that with our kids, we do that with our spouses, we do that with sometimes our neighbors and friends. We often have a high level of intolerance when people interrupt what we think is really important to us. Well, one of the things in the text that we're dealing with in Mark chapter one is when Jesus gets interrupted in the middle of teaching. And it's a fascinating story because I think it teaches us a lot of things about how Christ wants us to live even though the scenario can be very different. Mark chapter one, if you have your Bibles and want to follow along, we'll have it on the screen. It, It begins this way and it says, and they, that's being Jesus and the disciples, went into Capernaum. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout the surrounding regions of Galilee." You know, it's a fascinating story and in some respects fairly simplistic, but I want to just sort of paint a little bit of a picture of what Jesus does in this scenario because I think it fits perfectly in line as we come to the close of formulating a, a fresh sense of vision as elders. We're kind of down to the wire on that. As we move through the summer, we're hoping to position ourselves uh, in the fall for some, just some new and exciting things that hopefully will shape the direction of what we're doing. But when Jesus comes into this situation, there are four things that I think help at least understand the context in which he's coming into. First of all, he, comes to the, he talks about coming into Capernaum, and it's, it's an interesting scenario. We've, it's on the north side of the Dead Sea, and, uh, or pardon me, the Sea of Galilee. I apologize for that. And he goes to the synagogue. Now, I don't know how familiar you are with synagogues, but Back when Israel was, uh, sort of the temple was destroyed back in about 587 BC, they were taken captive into the Babylonian territory and they were exiled from the land because of their disobedience to God and God used the Babylonians to basically ruin their week to be this massive interruption into their daily routines and life that they thought they had all figured out. So, the Jews didn't have any place they could call a holy place to meet, so they created these sort of facilities called synagogues, and they really had the purpose of uh, being a place of worship, a place of instruction, and it was a place where they as a community could meet when they weren't in their home base. They were exiled onto someone else's space and on someone else's territory, and they had to figure out a way that they could meet. Well, when they came back to the land, they continued with the synagogues and they became like community centers for the Jews. One of the primary reasons for it was for teaching and instruction, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But the other thing that the text notes is that it's the Sabbath. Now the Sabbath is particularly a Jewish framework in the sense that God had asked them to recognize a number of Sabbaths, both on their weekly basis, on special holidays, and different times of the year. A Sabbath was a time where they ceased from doing all their normal work and their normal activities, and they dedicated time to come before the Lord and to present themselves before him. There was often sacrifices, but they, they were supposed to give time and attention directly to the Lord himself in recognition of all that he had done. So again, it was, a, it was somewhat of an interruption to the week. Uh, for us that are workaholics and love to work from one end of the day to the other, all seven days of the week, this prevented that from happening, is that God would say, hey, every week from Saturday evening to Uh, Friday evening to Saturday evening was Sabbath and it's to be holy to me and you're to not do any work and there's all kinds of rules and regulations about how far they could travel and what work was unacceptable to do. In fact, if you read through the Gospels, you'll discover that Jesus on the Sabbath is walking through the grain fields, picking grain and rubbing it through their hands and the Pharisees and the scribes have a fit about it because they considered that work and so they were very, very legalistic about this whole idea of dedicating to the Lord even though their heart really wasn't in tune with God that was keeping the rules. The scribes were kind of the legal uh, experts of the law. Uh, you would find them in a lot of different communities. The Pharisees had them, the Essenes had them. Uh, they were in a lot of different scenarios. The scribes were kind of the bookkeepers and they were the professional uh, Uh, individuals who understood the law. They were the students, and so they had a process of um, really understanding the different aspects of the law, the moral elements of the law, and how it applied in terms of their culture and their community, and that was their responsibility. And then finally we're introduced to, to these unclean spirits. We don't often talk about these kinds of things because we live in a country that's kind of dismissed this whole idea of unclean spirits, but basically they're demons. Uh, the scriptures tell us that Satan was an angel that rebelled against God and led a whole uh, horde of angels that rebelled against God and they were cast out of heaven and so Satan now becomes the devil or uh, Beelzebul, uh, however you would want to pronounce his name and his, these angels now serve his purposes. One of the things that we see all the way through scriptures is that these demons, these spirits, these messengers of Satan's can afflict people. And they do it on a lot of different levels, but in this particular case, you see that there's a singular man who has got an, what is called an unclean spirit. So it basically is a demon that, inf, it, that affects his life, and it is it, we would say indwells his life, and, and it basically wrecks it. Uh, it's a disruption on a grand and spiritual scale where his life is controlled and he does all kinds of bizarre things as you will see in other parts of the scripture. These demons can force a person to do things against their will and they create a very chaotic and very devastated life that has a lot of collateral damage in it. And so we, we have this context in which Jesus comes to Capernaum, and he walks into their synagogue where they get teaching and instructions. It's on the Sabbath day, so they're not supposed to be doing any work. Uh, The scribes are sort of the religious experts of the time, so they have their religion and all their rules set in place, and yet there's this unclean spirit who doesn't care about their rules, uh, afflicting and devastating a life that is basically being wrecked by this outside influence in their life. The primary thought in terms of this is that when Jesus comes in, there's like five times the reference to his teaching. And Jesus comes into the synagogue and that when they came in there, they would often allow rabbis, sort of like guest speakers to come and they'd usually sit and they would expound upon the Old Testament law and they would give instruction and in what it was to look like. A typical Uh, framework for for the Sabbath and for the synagogues in terms of teaching is they'd often read the Torah, which is the Old Testament law. They would do a reading from the prophets and then there would be instructions or sermons that would be given. So you will see that it was Jesus' custom to go into a place and he would go to the synagogue and then he would be given a platform in order to teach from the Old Testament law or the prophets. And you'll see this in a number of different situations in terms of the Gospels. But Jesus does something that's a little bit different. Uh, Jesus comes into this environment and he doesn't fit the normal protocols. He doesn't follow all the guidelines on what's going on. And one of the things that becomes very clear is that he does not teach like the scribes. Now just for the sake of context, let me try to give you some, some words that help you sort of understand how the scribes did things. Their scribes taught differently than Jesus because their confidence was in passing along traditions, that's their thing. This is what we've always done, this is what we bring forward, and this is what we keep, because that's what we do as Jews. Is this is our family and cultural history, we keep those no matter what. The second element is clarity in terms of what other rabbis taught. Uh, they would quote precedent, so they'd call uh, quote other rabbis who had interpreted the scriptures in certain ways. It, it probably would feel like a courtroom. You know, they're always quoting precedent. Here's what this particular teacher or expert of the law would say about this and how they interpret it. So they would bring that forward and use it as part of stating their case about what was right, especially when it came to judicial matters and uh, moral uh, elements. The greatest challenge that they had was helping everybody keep the letter of the law. Uh, So when you saw Jesus, uh, you know, taking corn or or weed or whatever it was and rubbing it in his hands, they were on that like crazy. They were like, you can't do that, that's work. So they they had a high level of commitment to the law, but they had a high commitment to legalism. It was all about checking the boxes and making sure that they they kept all the rules. The problem is they left their heart out of it. Uh, Their heart for God was not anywhere near where it ought to be and this is why Jesus comes in and does something very different. And as I suggested already, certainly there was great certainty as to precedents that had already been set. So if you walk into a courtroom and you hear those kind of arguments, that would be my best way of saying this is kind of how the scribes operated. It seems extremely forensic and legalistic and frankly, probably boring. And Jesus walks in and he's going to do something that is very, very different. In fact, for the sake of being concise, let me suggest to you five things that Jesus did. Instead of his confidence in traditions, conf- his confidence is in the accuracy of truth. Why? Because he is truth. He's God's son. He has, he has a perspective on truth that no human being is ever going to get the same kind of clarity about or same kind of confidence, but it sets a precedent that was different than the scribes. The clarity was in terms of the meaning of that truth. I mean that's why he had authority is because he had perfect clarity about what the what the real intent was. I mean today we run into this problem all the time. We're dealing with new ways of interpreting the scriptures and trying to have seven different interpretations and trying to figure out which is the right one. Jesus didn't have that problem. When Jesus quoted the Old Testament, he knew exactly what was on the heart of God, and he knew exactly what the meaning was in terms of what was going on, so there was no wishy-washy elements of what this means. He had absolute clarity. The challenge as was basically challenging as to the true nature of relationship with God. The biggest gap of the time with the scribes and the Pharisees is that they knew the letter of the law, they didn't know the God behind the law. They, they gave lip service to him, and you'll see this in Matthew, and other passage. These people honor me with their lips, but their heart is miles from me. And so they've created, in a sense, the perfect religion. There's duty and responsibility, and there's traditions, and there's rituals. And they got people to conform to all those things and convince them that this is what it means to be a good Jew. And Jesus walks in and says, listen, not interested in your traditions. I'm not interested in all your legalities and all the nuances of the law. I'm not interested in precedent of another commentary. I'm giving you clarity about the meaning of God's word. And he does it in a powerful way. And so he, he ilu- illuminates the certainty of personal responsibility and relationship to God that the scribes never clearly understood. And then, of course, there's consistency with the true reality of God's heart. Because God has always, and you see it flooding the Old Testament, is that God's people have this tendency to abandon God or become so legalistic that God becomes meaningless. It's all about keeping the rules and the traditions. And and so when Jesus walks into this context, he speaks with authority. Now I, I contrast that to today where you get some preachers and teachers who think they have authority so they yell and scream at people. That's not necessarily the idea that I would have as having authority. Uh, it's not the same thing as what Jesus needed to do in terms of teaching. He was, he, he's got clarity. He understands the truth. He explains it perfectly. He knows the heart of God. He understands the meaning and the relevance for where it connects with people. So Jesus isn't up there ranting and raving The only time you see him doing that is when he went into the the temple and they were sort of prostituted the whole process so badly that he wrecked the place. I mean, he overturned the money changers and he turned over all the cages with the animals in it. That just infuriated him because instead of being a place of prayer, it became this marketing thing that had just basically kept people further from God. And so Jesus comes in and It leads us to the first principle that I want to tell you about. And the first principle is this. Jesus moved into their space, joined them in their context, and participated in their activities. When the term says that Jesus went into Capernaum, the the word went there is very interesting. It literally has about the ideas that he moved into their space. It's not the normal one. There's another word that says someone came into a room or something like that. This is a little bit different word that's used here. It literally means he moved into their space and joined them where they were at. And it's, it's fascinating in terms of what happens is that, and not that these things are wrong, but Jesus didn't pitch uh, a tent outside of Capernaum and invited people to a crusade. I'm not saying that's wrong, but I just want to know. There's a big difference between what Jesus is doing here. He didn't. He didn't invite people to an evangelistic event. He stepped and moved into their space, and he started participating in their stuff. And so, some of that, he had a lot of common ground. They were talking about teaching and talking about the law, and he and he clearly had some common ground with that. But then there, they, so he. He connects with them and he moves into their space and joins them. There are strong religious rules and cultural preferences that have been established by the Pharisees and the scribes but as as I began thinking about it I thought what a profound truth for us. What an amazing truth for us is that if we're going to be a disciple making church It's great that we invite people to come and join us on Sunday. It's great that we have the kind of events that we think are meaningful that we can invite people to join. But I wanna encourage you that the churches that will always be most effective at disciple making have people who are not hiding from the world, but people who have the confidence and the courage to step in and move into the spaces where other people are living and be able to communicate God's truth in a way that has the kind of authority and power, not that we're yelling at them, but they come away from that amazed not only at our compassion and our mercy, but the reality of something that breaks through the falsehood and the fakeness of life and helps point them to a living God that cares about them. And so as, as we think about that, I, I was thinking about Paul in 1 Corinthians 9 where he basically says, I'm free from all men, but I become a slave so that I might win the more. If you follow the text, he says, for those with the law, I become as a person of the law. In other words, he's saying, I know how they think, so I'm gonna start there, and I'm gonna talk them through that and point them to Jesus. If they don't have the law, then I'm not gonna use the law, they won't get it, so without the law, I still have the law of Christ in me, but I'm gonna gonna move into their space, and I'm gonna figure out where they're thinking, and then I'm gonna bring them to the point of the reality of the person of Jesus. And I, and I, I want to encourage you, is do you, have, are you, are you living your life in such a way that you're moving into the space of people that don't know Jesus and willing to connect and participate and do life with them so that they might be able to see the Jesus that's in you? Now you know me, I'm kind of addicted to this thing, I like studying it. And I know some of you are radically addicted to it as well, and that's a good thing. But sometimes we become so obsessed of studying this, and it doesn't go anywhere. It doesn't make any sense to be in 15 Bible studies and have no non-Christian friends. And if studying this truth doesn't translate into moving into spaces of other people's lives to help them understand the Christ, you can study this till the cows come home, and it's not gonna do you any good. And there's a tremendous example that Jesus is gonna set for us here that I think is exactly the place that we need to keep encouraging ourselves to step into. That equipping and training and understanding truth is absolutely critical, but if it doesn't compel us to move into the space of other people, then it's not gonna do any good. Or oh, it, it might help me stay insulated from the world and secure in my teachings, but it doesn't carry out the mission of Jesus. The second principle is Jesus taught with authority. He's not winging it. He's not talking about uh, necessarily the, the, the social issues of the time. The primary focus is he is expounding and teaching truth. And we live in a world where truth is simply being dished. Our community group right now is going through a series out of Right Now Media called The Road Trip to Truth. And they point out something that you probably already know, but it was interesting, is that they'll go around asking people, what's truth? And it's amazing how much people struggle with what truth is. And at the same time, it doesn't surprise me people struggle with truth because people don't know what truth is. And so then the question is asked, is this gentleman's interviewing different people, and most of them are young people or whatever, but it doesn't matter. He says, so... Do you think truth is subjective, like it's your personal determination, or is it objective, that there's some standards out there that are more absolute that everyone needs to live by? Well, some of the people he interviewed were Christians, so they just kind of went, well, I'm a Christian, so I think there's absolute truth. But lots of them said, oh, no, no, truth is all personal. It's all subjective in terms of what you want it to be. I mean, that's the world we're living in is that the final authority for truth is the individual, and what your truth is is different than my truth, and it doesn't matter. And that affects Christians as well, especially when it comes to morality. We we have people that are on very different pages in terms of morality who all claim to be Christians, and they're in very different spots, and so we like to make up our own truth too. It's not just the world who struggles with this. But as, as you begin to listen to this process, it's very much the times that we live in is that the individual, especially when it comes to moral or religious truth, I get to determine what that truth is. You don't get to tell me what it is. It's always an interesting process. It's, I think one of the most effective ways you can have conversations with people is when they, you start talking morality, when you start engaging people, one of the questions you can pause and say, listen, can I just get your understanding of what truth is? Do you, do you see it as like subjective or objective? And if you need to, you know, is it just a everyone's own personal decision what truth is or is there absolute standards that we need to fit by? Depending on how you, they answer that question can give you a lot of leverage on how you have the conversation with them. So the, the idea in this is that when Jesus steps into the synagogue, he's concerned about truth. He's concerned about God's word. He, he, he came not to communicate and debate ideas and philosophical differences, he came to communicate truth. And one of the critical things in this is that Jesus teaches this with the kind of clarity and confidence that's unlike the scribes at all. And so people are standing back going like, man, this dude knows what he's talking about. This is unbelievable. And so Jesus taught with truth and communicated truth. And one of the things we have to learn to have greater confidence in is speaking the truth in everyday life stuff. We don't have to do it in a condescending or condemning way, but we've got to figure out how to communicate truth because if you don't communicate truth, people will never know what they need to be saved from and they'll never know who they need to be saved by. If they don't know the truth about Jesus, they're never going to trust in him. If they don't understand the truth about sin, they're never going to believe in Jesus. If they don't understand that in terms of a Christian worldview that really what is true is what conforms to the mind of God What God has created defines what truth is. And even though everybody in the world may deny the existence of God and we can define our own truth, they can't live that way. I had a person do that to me one time. They go, We were debating the physics of gravity. And they sat there in the room and tried to say, Listen, I, I think if you really understand the nuances of molecules and all these things, we could actually defy gravity. I said, How's that going? Well, he says, I'm not far along in my thinking enough to be able to do it yet. I said, good, because my next offer was to have you get up on the roof and show me how it works. I mean, people want to make up their own truth, but they can't live in this world that way because the, the world was created by a God who created absolutes into it. Two plus two equals four. Four. You can try to make it make something else, but that's, that's the law of math and physics, and yeah, I know there's fancy calculus and all those kind of things that can come up with all kinds of interesting answers, but the fact is, God's the one who created it, he's an absolute God, and so there are absolutes. But we have to learn how to move into people's spaces and then with love and kindness and have discussions about what truth is. And so that's why we keep teaching, that's why we ought to, study the word, because the more we can filter the truth of God's word in it, the better equipped we are to have conversations with people. Now, if you don't want to have conversations with people, then there's no point studying the word. Right? So if you don't have any interest in studying the word, then that would make perfect sense that you might not have any need or reason to have conversations with people. But, the, but what I want you to notice here is the commitment of his authority is that Jesus taught with authority, but I also want you to notice that he touched lives with that same authority. Now that may sound funny, but when you go into the text, it tells us he went into the synagogue and he began to teach. Um, just, just to prove to you that I love studying the Bible, that is an imperfect verb. It's not passive, it's, it's an imperfect, so it's not a perfect verb either. So a perfect verb would mean he started something in the past and he completed it and there was ongoing results. Imperfect mean that Jesus God had started doing it and then this unclean person sort of burst on the scenes and I believe interrupted what Jesus was teaching. And that's kind of the tenor of the text. Jesus is teaching and then immediately, as Mark would put it, all of a sudden, in the midst of all this teaching Jesus is doing, they get this massive interruption by this man with an unclean spirit. Now, I don't know about you, but if I had someone, well, interrupt us on Sunday morning, what would be my tendency? We're security. Would you mind helping this person out so that we can help them and stop interrupting me? Right? That, that would be our first inclination. You're interrupting the service. Jesus doesn't call for security to have him hauled out. Now, Jesus probably doesn't need much security. He could probably handle him quite well on his own, but that's beside the point. But the idea here is that, that this, this as Jesus is teaching and he's talking probably about the Old Testament, maybe talking about how he fulfills part of it. He did that on several occasions. He might be talking about the prophet. We don't know. It's not. He doesn't communicate it to us. But in the middle of this, all of a sudden, Jesus is interrupted and suddenly and harshly by this man with an unclean spirit. And then he says, he makes two, or has two questions and makes a statement. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Now, there's a lot of weird, bizarre questions here because the singular. Uh, Singular and plural are in a switch, so we don't know whether there's like a bunch of demons in the sky or one. It's kind of a weird scenario. I don't want to get lost in that. But he says, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? So he clearly, the unclean spirit, understands that this Jesus isn't just another Jesus of the area. He's Jesus of Nazareth. And by the very nature of it, identifies something that we talked about in the previous verses was part of Jesus fulfilling the prophets by growing up in Nazareth. Now we don't know what the intent of the unclean Spirit is, but it's amazing that he has that kind of insight. And then he says, "Have you come to destroy us?" You know, it's odd how even James reiterates the fact that the demons seem to have a better clarity on Jesus than even we do. They not only recognize His identity, but they recognize His authority they know this person standing in front of them is nobody to mess with. Because this person has authority that could easily destroy this spirit. Now in our world, we don't talk much about demons and spirits. Because we rely pretty heavily on science and medications to deal with lots of things that need to be dealt with, but it also tends to overflow the issues that some people have that probably will never be fixed by medications or science or surgery, but they're afflicted by something that's far more powerful and far more significant. I certainly believe that even back then, I believe Satan is still a personality that's still alive and well, and I think his demons are still alive and well. And I think around the world, they are sort of on the front lines of creating as much chaos and turmoil and pain and suffering as they possibly can. But I'm staggered that the demon has better insight into the person of Jesus than even the scribes, who are supposed to be experts at God's word. be kind of embarrassing, wouldn't it, to claim to be a Christian and can't even see what's right in front of us. The demons clearly have a deep sense of perspective about and, as James would say, probably tremble at it when we're completely indifferent to it. And so as Jesus hears this cry from this unclean spirit. He doesn't call from security. He doesn't throw him out of the synagogue. Jesus does basically three things. He stops teaching. He rebukes the unclean spirit and commands the unclean spirit to come out of him. So he first tells him, stop talking. That would be a great parenting principle, wouldn't it? No, ignore that, 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 that's not a good, anyway, you got it. Just want to see if you're awake out there, that's all. And the reason why Jesus wants the demon to not be, because Jesus doesn't need demons promoting who he is. That creates a whole conflict of interest. It's the same thing you find in Matthew 12, if Jesus casted out demons or Beelzebub by the power of Beelzebub, then it's a house divided. It's the same problem here, just a little bit different in the sense that God doesn't need demons and Satan promoting who he is, even though they see him very clearly and are and terrified of him. Because it, it throws a question into the credibility of Jesus when you got un, irreparable demons promoting him. So he tells him to be silent and then calls him and commands him to come out of this man. And so it leads to the third principle that I want to mention to you this morning. Some of the most unexpected interruptions to our activities can present to us the greatest opportunities for God to use us to impact those around us who are in desperate need of a touch from Jesus. But I don't know about you, but one of the things that I don't know how you do with it, but the danger is, is that when I get my mind fixed up on my schedule and this is what I'm going to do and someone interrupts it, I tend to get frustrated. Sometimes I can even get ticked at people because I've got my week laid out. I've got it organized. I've got it systematized. This is what I do. In order to be efficient and effective, I'm going to be on track with this thing. You're screwing up my day. If that doesn't make sense to you, how many of you as husbands get irritated when your wives interrupt something that you want to do but they've got something more important that they want you to do? For some, parenting is kind of the worst experience in life because kids are just a pain in the neck and they require a lot of work and energy because they're interrupting me living the kind of life that I'd really dreamed about living. My boss is, I'm not saying this personally, but this might be going through your mind. <laughs> the boss that I work for is a pain in the neck. And I can't stand him or her. Because they're always changing their mind and interrupting what I'm trying to do and I can't get anything done. The people I work with are knuckleheads and I, they can't get on the same page. The people that are under me won't do what I've asked them to do. And, Life is really inconvenient. There's too many interruptions to the things that I want to do in life and and it's very easy for us to get deeply frustrated and annoyed at people because they're encroaching on my time and my space and my work and what I want to do and how could you have such disrespect for me to interrupt what I'm doing in life? And Jesus is teaching and he's harshly interrupted by a man with an unclean spirit, and he doesn't say, get rid of him so I can finish teaching. He taught with authority and was already amazing the people that he spoke differently than the scribes, but he stops and he goes over to this man and he responds to his need. So Jesus isn't just into the academics of the truth, he's into the reality of changed lives by that truth. Boy, if there's anything that we, if we want to be a powerhouse in God's hands and impacting people's lives, I, I want to borrow the idea from Experiencing God by Blackaby. He says, if, if there's things that you see that people are interested in, spiritual things, or there's an interruption to your life, you might want to consider that God's opening up a door for you to step into someone's life and make a difference, Because after all, we sort of have surrendered the idea that we want to be followers of Jesus and surrender to him and be obedient to him, whatever he's doing, and whatever he wants to do in our life. But if I've got my life so buttoned up and I've got so much control over it that I can't make adjustments when Jesus taps me on the shoulder and says, here's a need, then I'm going to miss the opportunities of a lifetime to see the power of God change people's lives, simply because I'm busy. I wonder if you look back on this last year how many divine appointments you've missed and that I've missed because i got stuff to do. Principle number four. When God's people gather, there are often people who come who are burdened with extraordinary personal, physical, or spiritual afflictions. Now, I actually can't tell that when I'm looking at you. You guys look like you're all put together and pretty good, other than the few that are sleeping, because I'm, but anyway. No, I'm ki- Don't look. I'm not, I'm kidding. I'm not. You know me Not. You must know me by now. Don't look. But the danger is is that it's easy in the Christian community and we've seen it for years, maybe got trapped in ourselves, is that when we come here, we check all our problems at the door, say we're fine and everything's good and yet we've got stuff in our life that's killing us because we don't know what to do with it. And I notice Jesus doesn't dish on the man with the unclean spirit because he's got an unclean spirit. He didn't set him up and say like, what's the matter with you? Didn't you do Bible study this morning? You should be able to handle this yourself. And I'll tell you, churches are full of people who are undergoing afflictions, maybe even some kind of affliction from spiritual beings that we often ignore and just want to give them a pill. And, and we think that when they walk in here that, like, well, if, if I'm really a person of faith, God will never allow me to handle, experience anything that I can't handle. So we get this delusional idea in our mind that, that being spiritual means I have to be able to handle everything. And apparently when this, if Mark knew that this guy had an unclean spirit, I suspect everybody did. And so this guy's problem is on display for everyone to see it. And I suspect if the scribes were standing there, they'd go like, this guy's unclean, we need to get rid of him. We don't want to touch him because we already know he's got an unclean spirit. So we just got to figure out a way to get him out of the building so that he's not wrecking our service this morning. But whenever we gather, there are often people who come who are burdened with extraordinary personal, physical, or spiritual afflictions. And we don't want to just here sit here on Sundays and wax eloquently about truth and not move alongside and try to touch your life to help find freedom in Christ. I don't know how to emphasize it other than, listen, if you come here just to hear something and and leave, and you've got things on your life that you really need prayer for or need people to come alongside, that's why we're here. You don't have to apologize or be embarrassed about it or think that you're less spiritual. It's part of the mark of great courage and faith is saying, listen, I need prayer. I need someone to move alongside my life. Now, maybe we don't do it perfectly. I know we don't. But we have a great community who I think will make commitments to love others and be with them in the journey and and move into your space if you will allow them. But you and I both know the biggest struggle with that is not the people who are hearing about your need. It's you going, yeah, I know exactly what they're going to think. They're not going to accept me. They're going to think I'm a fake. They're going to wonder why I don't have the faith to overcome this. I'm not sure I belong. I would not dare share this with anybody because I don't know how they're going to react. As we step into the future, we not only want to teach the word, but we want to touch lives with all the compassion and the love and the mercy and the grace because we all have our stuff. We're all messed up and broken. And outside of the redeeming grace of God, we'd all be a train wreck. Well, except for those who know how to manage their train wreck and then they would appear perfectly normal. Principle number five. And I've kind of said this already, so I'll just mention it and move on. This man wasn't faking his issues. He wasn't trying to hide them. I just I I want Oak Grove Church, and I know our leaders do and our elders. Oak Grove Church wants to be a place where people, no matter how wounded and broken they are, can walk in and know that we will love them and we will do all that we can to allow the power of Christ to touch their lives. If you step into our space, we want to step and move into your space so that you might discover the power of Jesus. Religion will never bring healing. Scribes and the Pharisees, they got rid of people because they didn't believe in the power of God. Principle number six: the gathering of God's people will always be a gathering of broken people who have unresolved issues. Jesus moves into our space to help us experience the power of Christ and to bring freedom. We're all on the same journey. We all need Jesus, but the danger is is that as Paul warns in 1 Corinthians 8, knowledge tends to make us arrogant, like we're better than we think we are. Love tends to edify. Truth is critical, because once we abandon truth and everything is subjective in our own decisions, then we're going to be off keel from what God says is true. But based on that truth, that truth has to transfer into touching lives or it doesn't do any good. And it's amazing to me that Jesus is deeply committed to teaching and teaching in an amazing way. But he's also deeply committed to moving alongside and touching lives. And I want you to just come back to the consequences of Jesus' authority and what he does here because there's three statements. People were astonished that he taught with authority. They were amazed at his power over the spirits. And people spread his fame. Why? Because Jesus is different. In today's world, we're, no, we're more enamored by the performance than we are the person behind it. We know that we have to guard against whether it's preaching and personalities and worship and, and, and building things up in such a way that people fall more in love with the experience than they do with Jesus. But Jesus was different. And l- let me illustrate it this way in a good way. I think if I went through here, probably every one of you that knows and loves Jesus has your favorite preachers and teachers. It, it could be uh, a whole list and river of individuals who it could be. We've, we've got, and you know, I almost hate to mention people because as soon as I do it, someone's going to go, wow, he doesn't know much about that person. I don't like them. But some of you are love John Piper. Others, it's Tim Keller. Others, Beth Moore. And, and we could go through a whole list of people that you love to listen because these people are powerful teachers and preachers. They communicate the message. They're committed to the authority of God's word and they just they do it in such a way that you're, you're on their podcasts all the time and you're listening to them. These are the, the probably the most significant, powerful communicators in our country and we know and, and you've got those that you love. And the reason I hope that you love listening to them is because, like Jesus, they're committed to the authority of God's word. And they seem to have this sense of clarity about the truth that they're not willing to compromise, and that's why you like to listen to them, is because when they speak about hard issues, you appreciate their honesty. They're never going to rise to the level of Jesus, but that's why you... You probably all have these favorite people you love to listen to because they're, they're not only mesmerizing in what they communicate, but they do it with power and the authority of God's word. And believe me, in our culture, that's, dimini- that's disappearing quickly. And, and, and the fame of Jesus, the reputation of Jesus, I mean, they didn't have the kind of marketing strategies we have today, so they, he's kind of at a disadvantage except who carries the message? Well, it's pretty obvious. The people who experienced the teaching and the touch of Jesus are the ones that went out and said, listen, you gotta listen to this guy. You gotta come and see Jesus because he's different. He's different than the scribes, he's different than the Pharisees, he's different than all these people we've been listening to. There's something profoundly unique about Jesus. and I want Oak Grove Church, if it's gonna have any reputation at all, is that we teach the word of God, and we're uncompromising to it. But we also wanna be a people that that take that authority that God puts in his word, and we wanna use that same authority to touch people's lives so they're changed, and healed, and rescued, from Satan and darkness and the afflictions of life. And that's why God calls me and you, like Jesus, that when we walk out these doors this week, that you would have the confidence and the courage to move into someone else's space and say, hey, how's it going? What can I pray for? How are you handling life What's it, how are you doing being single? What's it like trying to parent? <laughs> my mom's birthday was June 2nd, she was 91. I haven't seen her about three years with COVID. My niece and her husband Jeremy have three kids, and on my mom's birthday, delivered triplets. Well, if that is isn't inconvenient, I don't know what is. Wow. But that inconvenience is gonna give them the greatest opportunity in the world to raise up kids that know and love the Jesus that died for them. And to multiply them into a world that is desperately lost so that others can be rescued from their sin and the darkness of this world and discover hope in Jesus. Let me ask you something this morning. Do you think you have the confidence and the courage to allow Jesus to move into your space this morning? And Maybe the Spirit of God's already putting something, his finger on something in your life that's unresolved or that you're afflicted with that you've been managing kind of well but not really allowing God's power to find freedom. And maybe that allows other believers to move into your space as well to help encourage you on the journey because this isn't about whether you meet this appearance of perfection walking into the synagogue. Because we all know we're broken. What it is is that we have this amazing privilege to stand before the God of the universe and know that he loved us so much that he gave up his only Son so that every one of us can discover a new trajectory in life because of the, not only the teaching of truth, but the touch of the Savior's hand in our life. And believe me, we all desperately need it. We don't want to be the scribes who think that we've got it all together and can't see Jesus standing right in front of us because we're so stuck in our own religion that there's no room for Jesus to move into our space and make a real difference. Father, we are amazed at Jesus. It's deeply convicting because we know that if we allow Jesus to speak into our life when we hear his truth, we'll be astonished every time. We'll be amazed and you will continue to, to stagger our minds and our hearts with the reality of a God who probably should judge us because of all of our sin and our brokenness and our dysfunction. And yet out of your profound mercy and grace, you sacrificed your son so that you would give us a hope of redemption, a hope of healing, a hope of a new trajectory in life that isn't tormented by the afflictions of life. And so, Father, in one sense, for some of us sitting here, we do need a miracle. A miracle that allows Jesus to move into your space, no matter how painful it is, and allow him to touch those areas of life that need healing from the unclean things that have afflicted our lives. So that then we might go out into the world and spread the fame of Jesus about what he's done for us in changing who we are, the direction we're going in life, and the hope that you've given to us in Jesus. Father, make it so. In Jesus' strong name, amen.